you want to open up with me in your copy of Scripture to Romans chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 1 and 2 in Paul's letter to the Romans. I think for many of us as Christians, we can tend to kind of struggle with the same questions week in and week out as we go through the Christian life. How do I live this life as a Christian? How do I seek to live the Christian life, right? What does it look like for me to be a believer? And how, what does it look like me, for me to live for Christ? And I think the reason that we struggle with this is because we know that Christ has saved us from our sins. He's called us to himself. He's cleansed us from all our iniquity. But the question remains... Okay, now that I'm saved, how should I live my Christian life? How am I to walk in the Lord? How am I to live? How am I to give of myself? What do I give myself to? How am I to live? And maybe even more pointedly than that, how can I know if I'm doing God's will? How can I know if I'm doing God's will? What is God's will for my life? How am I to live in accordance with God's will, can I even know if I'm living according to God's will or am I just left to wander around? And these could be big questions in our life like, what job should I take? Who should I marry? You know, where should I move? Big questions like that. But even small daily decisions that we make, what is God's will for my life? How can I live and follow him? These are all questions that we wrestle with as believers. And we'll see today in Romans chapter 12 that God hasn't left us to figure out this question for ourselves. He hasn't left us in the dark. He never leaves us in the dark, right? He sent the light of the world. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ. And he hasn't left us in the dark to figure out what his will for our life is. That when we say God's word is sufficient, right? When we say scripture is sufficient, we're not only saying for what we are to believe in terms of faith, but what we are to practice, what we are to do, how we are to live, and that these two can't be separated from each other. We can't say, well, I believe these things, but it has no implication on how I live my life. They're vitally and inseparably connected. And so where we're, where we're jumping in in Romans chapter 12 is Paul has just spent 11 chapters proclaiming the glory of the gospel of Christ. He's been explaining what the gospel is. What is justification? What is adoption? What is sanctification? What is election? What is glorification? What has Christ done for us? And he turns now in chapter 12 from an explanation of the gospel to the implications of the gospel. From gospel proclamation to gospel practice. How we are to live in light of what Christ has done for us in saving us. How we are to live in light of what God has done in the gospel. And that is really the heart of all the questions that we wrestle with on a day-to-day basis. And so what we're going to see today in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, is what God calls us to in the Christian life. And how how we can actually know God's will for our life. And live accordingly. So I'm going to read our passage. I'll pray for us. And then we will look to God's word. This is the word of the Lord. 
Paul says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of grace. As we seek now to know and understand how we are to live in light of what you've done, may you give us strength this evening. May you open our eyes. May you illumine our hearts to see the glory of Christ and to see the path of life that you have given to us in your gospel and how we are to live in light of that. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So the Apostle Paul here, in making this transition, does something that he does in a lot of the other letters that he writes, whether it's Ephesians or Galatians. He makes this change, this shift, in his letters from gospel proclamation to gospel practice. Or we could say it like this, from doctrine, what we are to believe, to devotion. The fancy words are, indicative what God has done and imperative what we are to do, what we must do in light of what God has done. Or we could say it like this. Having received Christ, Paul now turns and shows us how we are to walk in Christ. And what we're going to see today is two things. In verse 1 and point 1, we're going to see our bodies as a living sacrifice. Our bodies as a living sacrifice. And secondly, in verse 2, we're going to see a renewed mind. A renewed mind. A living sacrifice and a renewed mind. So we see in verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That we see the Apostle Paul here makes his appeal, he makes his plea. He's urging, he's beseeching the people of God by the mercies of God. It's a very important phrase. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That it is right there in that phrase, by the mercies of God, that we see the connection between doctrine and devotion. Between indicative what God has done and imperative what we are to do. That is, is because of the love of Christ in the gospel. It is because God is merciful. It is by the grace and mercy of God's work in salvation that God's people can live for him. It's only by the mercies of God. That's why he says, by the mercies of God. (laughs) By the mercies of God, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Matthew Henry said this. He said, the foundation of Christian practice must be laid in the bedrock of Christian knowledge and faith. That Christian practice, the foundation of Christian practice, must be laid in the bedrock of Christian knowledge and faith. 
We have no hope of practicing our faith rightly if we don't know God rightly. We have no hope of practicing our faith rightly if we do not know God rightly. He goes on to say, we must first understand how we receive Christ. Then we shall know how to walk in him. The cart cannot come before the horse. We can't know how we are to live unless we know how we have received Christ. This is what um, 20th century theologian J. Gresham Machen famously called the fundamental difference between Christianity and theological liberalism. He has a great book called Christianity and Liberalism. He's not talking about political liberalism. He's talking about modern theological liberalism. Those that would deny the resurrection, that would deny the virgin birth. Those that deny any supernatural nature to the Christian faith. And he says this, liberalism is altogether in the imperative mode. Beginning with an appealing to man's will. You must do this. That's all theological liberalism can offer to people. You must do this. You must serve the poor. You must do this. You must serve in this soup kitchen. You must do this. Just a list after list after list of you must do this. It's moralism. But he says, in contrast, Christianity begins with the triumphant indicative Announcing first a gracious act of God. So Christianity doesn't begin with, okay, you go work. It begins with Christ has worked. Christ has done it all. Now live for him. And that is wholly different. And it's the fundamental difference between Christianity and any other religion. That we believe as Christians that the incarnate Son of God, the perfect spotless Lamb of God, took to himself our nature, both body and soul, so that he could save and redeem us. So that he could save us from our sins, so that he could, in the fullness of time, be born of a woman, so that he could obey the law perfectly, and then suffer perfectly by sacrificing himself, by giving of himself for sinners like us. And the gospel proclamation is that Christ has finished the work. It's complete. There's nothing left to be completed by us. We who are sinful and unholy have been forgiven of all of our sins and declared righteous before a holy God, not by our works, but by faith. And that it is only because of the grace of God and by the mercy of God that we can now present ourselves as what Paul calls living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. That it is only in light of the gospel that we can truly live for him. Now this phrase, living sacrifice, sounds kind of odd. It's almost like a paradoxical, it's like almost jumbo shrimp, right? Sacrifices are supposed to be dead, right? What is a living sacrifice? But what does Paul mean here but to present our whole selves, every part of us, both body and soul, to the service and glory of God? A living sacrifice is to present our whole being to God, giving of ourselves to his honor and glory. And this language of sacrifice 
is really drawing on the language from the Old Testament. And it's alluding to the offering up of bulls and goats that were slain in the Old Testament, that were laid before their altar, that were presented to the Lord as an act of worship, a ritual purification, and a means of ceremonial cleansing. But instead of Paul showing how these Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to Christ's sacrifice of himself... The apostle here uses this Old Testament picture to show how God's people that have been redeemed by Christ under the new covenant are not to offer bulls and goats, but are to offer up themselves. They're to offer up themselves as a living sacrifice. And he's contrasting here the dead sacrifice of animals that without faith were simply dead works and could not cleanse the conscience, mere will worship. He's contrasting that with the living sacrifices of God's people that by faith are holy and acceptable to God and are our act of spiritual worship that are actually able to cleanse our conscience. That under the gospel, we see in places like 1 Peter that all believers are referred to as priests to God, offering up spiritual sacrifices that are not the bodies of slain beasts, but their own bodies, their whole selves. And what's interesting is there's another parallel that the Apostle Paul is drawing on in this passage as he uses this language of holy and acceptable. We read a little bit about this in our Old Testament reading. That just as under the Old Covenant, the sacrifices that were brought before the Lord were to not be defiled. They were not to be unclean. They were not to be for common use, but for holy use. They were to be devoted to God. And so in the same way, under the new covenant, God's people are to offer up themselves sanctified and set apart by the spirit for holy use, devoting themselves to him, to God. And their worship is now made acceptable because of the perfect mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That this, brothers and sisters, is a call to holiness. The Apostle Paul here is calling us to live according to God's revealed will, according to his commands. He is calling us to live holy lives. This means first and foremost to mortify and kill our sin. That remaining corruption that is in us, he calls us to dig it out at the very root. That if any of you ever have weeds in your yard... You know, those dandelions. If you don't get it at the root, it's just going to come back in a week's time. You try to blow away the dandelion thinking that all those seeds went away and therefore the sin is dealt with. But it just plants 10,000 seeds in 10,000 other places. That's the way sin is. It needs to be dug out at the very root. And that's why we read in Romans chapter 6, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. He's saying, let it have no ground. Dig it out at the very root. Let it not reign in your mortal bodies. So this call to holy living is a call to mortify and kill our sin. But it's also a call to present ourselves as obedient slaves of righteousness. 
leading to our growth in sanctification, seeking to obey God's will and seeking good works. That in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, we talked about this as we were in the book of Haggai, but he talks, he pictures God's people as living stones. And he says they're being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, right? So this language from the Old Testament of temple, of a house, of stones, of a priesthood are found in the fulfillment of Christ and his people, right? We're being built up into a temple of God by the Spirit and we are called a holy priesthood because we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship, right? That what was pictured in the Old Testament in type and shadow is fulfilled in the worship of God's people as they offer up themselves, which is their reasonable spiritual worship. And so that leads right into our second point this morning in verse 2, as we see a renewed mind, a renewed mind. That as we are called to be a living sacrifice, presenting ourselves to God, so too in this passage we are called to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. That Paul says in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That as new creations in Christ that have been transformed from the kingdom of darkness, we've been literally plucked out of the kingdom of darkness, transferred from the kingdom of darkness, and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We've been delivered, we've been freed, we've been rescued. And so the Apostle Paul here exhorts us, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to this present age. That as believers, we are not to be conformed to this carnal world, this present age, because this world and this age are passing away. If you wanted to turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The, the Apostle John says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We see that to be conformed to the world, as the Apostle Paul talks about, is to love the world. To be conformed to the world is to love the world, is to desire after the world and the things of this world. John lists those as the desires of our flesh, the desires of our eyes, the pride of life. These are all the temptations that face God's people. Fleshly desires that rise up in this, rise up in us. Desires of our eyes, we see something, we long after it in this world. The pride of life, the pride of living in this fallen world, that the world, the flesh, and the devil are wholly against the love of God and the things of God. Waging war on the people of God, seeking to conform them to the patterns and customs of this world. 
That's what the world loves to do is conform us to its patterns, its customs, its ways, lull us to sleep, give us confidence in this world. And Paul says, do not be conformed to this present age. But he calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Not referring here to God's initial work of regeneration, but God's continual work of sanctification, right? This renewing of the mind is not this thing that happens at the beginning of our Christian life, although our our minds are enlightened by the gospel of Christ. But what is being pictured here in this continual renewal of our minds is our need for sanctification. That the people of God are not to love this world or the things of it. They're not to be conformed to this present evil age that is passing away. But as those that have tasted of the age to come, we are to look to the age that is to come. We are those that have experienced the birth from above. We are those that are being daily transformed and renewed in the spirit of our minds day by day. And so he's calling us here to earnestly desire not the things of this world, but the things of God. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. That we are to earnestly desire the things of God. We are to make use of God's means of grace. And I think primarily this is referring to the attending of the public worship of God. I was reading a lot of the older commentators on this passage, and almost unanimously, they said that this phrase, present present your bodies, was primarily referring to the duty of God's people to attend public worship. I think that's really interesting. I've read this verse many times. I never considered that before. But I think it's a profound thought when when we think of presenting our bodies What does that mean but to present our bodies (laughs) to come before the Lord physically as we gather together to worship him? Not checking a box, but having our gaze fixed on Christ and the gospel and the age to come. Praying, meditating on God's word, reading scripture, participating in the ordinances with reverence and faith, fellowshipping with the brothers and sisters in the faith, being sharpened and matured in our faith as Christians. That this is the way that we are not conformed to this world. That everything we do here as a church is countercultural. That's a big buzzword. People like to be countercultural, you know. But everything we do in this church is (laughs) countercultural. Because everything in our culture, everything in our world is against the things of God. But what we are coming to do here is to have genuine love for one another, fellowship, and worship the God who created us. Not being conformed to this world, but conformed to the, the world to come. And then Paul says something really interesting at the end of verse 2. He says that by doing this, we might know the will of God. We might know the will of God. Not the secret will of God, which cannot be searched or known, but God's revealed will in his perfect law, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
That we often ask this question, as we kind of alluded to at the beginning, how can I know God's will for my life? How can I know how am I to live for him? Who should I marry? What job should I take? Where should I live? Who should I spend my time with? Or maybe some of us, I know for me, early in my Christian life, I dealt with this question. Am I in God's will? Am I doing God's will? Am I somehow outside of God's will? Is he going to let me spin out into outer space because I'm not doing exactly what he wants me to do at any given moment? Can I know if God will be pleased with the decisions that I make? Can I know God's will for my life? And while these questions are important, I think they're often aimed at the wrong thing. That oftentimes when we speak about the will of God, we're trying to find out the secret will of God. We're trying to find out the secret will of God, that which cannot be known. Inquiring into things that cannot be searched out. What did Paul say just three verses before in Romans 11 verse 33? For who has known the mind of the Lord? The answer is no one. No one has known the mind of the Lord. His secret ways are unsearchable. That's what he says in verse 33. How unsearchable are his judgments. And so we will not know in this life the secret will of God. Why things happen and why things have gone according to the counsel of his will. But that's what makes this passage so amazing and so relevant to us. And that really leads into our application this evening. And I think it's such a freeing thought for us as Christians that wrestle with these questions. Because I'm going to say this and it's going to sound crazy. We can know God's will for our lives. (laughs) We can know God's will for our lives. Kindle, you just said we couldn't. We can't know God's secret will for our lives, but we can know his revealed will. We can know that which God has given us and commanded us in his word. That Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 that the end goal of having our minds renewed is so that we might discern what is the will of God. The whole purpose of having our minds renewed is so that we might know what God's will is for us. Not some mystic experience, not trying to read into the book of Providence and see if I can figure out what God's will is, but so that we might understand what God has given us in his word. So that we might know and discern by the Spirit how we are to live for him. And this is primarily summed up, as I said before, in God's law. That God's law is his revealed will for our life. The first four commandments dealing with our love for God. And the latter six dealing with our love for neighbor. And I absolutely love that this is in the Bible. Hopefully this is on the same page for you. So you can see these two things. If you look at Romans 13, just one chapter um, later. And you look at verse 10. He says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. That God's will for our life is that we would love him and love our neighbor. And that that is the fulfilling of the law. And so if you're asking yourself, how can I know God's will for my life? How can I know? 
Are you living according to his law? Are you seeking to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you seeking to love your neighbor as yourself? Paul will say this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God. You want to know God's will? This is the will of God. What does he say? Two words. Your sanctification. <laughs> I love that. This is God's will. Your sanctification. That God desires his people to grow in holiness and godliness and in Christ-likeness, to do that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That because we have been given new hearts with new affections, we can actually look to the law of God and see the path of life. We can actually see the path of life. The reformers called this the third use of the law. Not seeing the law as a mirror that only shows us our sinfulness. We're very familiar with that use of the law. But the rule of life as a guide for life. Not looking to the law for justification, but as a guide for the Christian life. Knowing that Christ has finished the work of salvation out of gratitude, we can now live for him and live according to his revealed will. And so we can say with confidence that this is God's will for your life. (laughs) Your sanctification, that you seek to love God and love neighbor, growing up into mature Christian faith and Christ-likeness. Because the world, as Paul says, is seeking to conform us to itself. The world is seeking to conform us to itself. Its desires, its passions that are passing away. The world says, love me. Love me. I'll give you what you want. Love me. Live for me. Live for yourself. Live for what you want. It's all about you. That's what the world says. The world says, don't give of yourself. Don't give of yourself as a living sacrifice for others. Don't obey the commands of God. Don't obey the law of God. They're bondage. They're slavery. Those laws are stuffy and antiquated. They have nothing to do with your pleasure and your desires. Don't obey the commands of God. They're burdensome. They're bondage. They're slavery. But I love what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 5. In verse 3, he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. (laughs) What a good promise that is for us, that the commands of God are not burdensome. It doesn't say they're not difficult. (laughs) It doesn't say they're not hard. It doesn't say that they won't be trying or sometimes difficult to obey. But it says that they are not burdensome, that they are actually true freedom for the Christian. That to live before the the Lord with a pure conscience, pleasing God with our lives. We will fail at this. We will sin. That's why we need to confess our sins. But God's commands are not burdensome to us. So we can know God's will for our lives. But secondly and finally, we see in this passage the spiritual nature of our worship. The spiritual nature of our worship. That even though, as we've said tonight, we are giving of our physical bodies, body and soul, as a living sacrifice. We see in this passage that our worship is spiritual in nature. Our worship is spiritual 
in nature. It's by the Spirit. Not worshiping in external forms, but in spirit and in truth, according to the heart. And this is contrasted with that which was in the Old Covenant. If you go to John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. And he says these words in verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That our worship is spiritual in nature primarily because God is spiritual, meaning God does not have a body. And what do we read in in Psalm 51? (laughs) I love these verses. He says, for you would not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. God doesn't care about burnt offerings. He doesn't care about physical ceremonies. He doesn't care about empty signs. What does he care about? A broken and contrite spirit before the Lord. Our worship, brothers and sisters, is spiritual in nature. Daily offering up our lives to the worship of God. Seeking to serve others and to serve Christ. Praying for and serving one another. And I love that in scripture, that even the prayers of the saints are pictured as incense that rises to heaven. It calls the prayers of the saints a pleasing, sweet-smelling aroma that rises up to heaven. That what was pictured in the Old Testament by incense being burned and rising to heaven gives us a picture of the nature of our worship. That as we give of ourselves, body and soul, to God and to the worship of God, our worship is accepted because of what Christ has done. And it's accepted in heaven, pleasing to God, a sweet-smelling aroma. Let's pray this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, that you are spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, without body, parts, or passions. The God who is infinite, who is unchanging, immortal, invisible, God only wise. We are at a loss for words sometimes when we contemplate and think about how undeserving we are to come before you. How undeserving we are to offer ourselves in worship to you. What could we give you? What could we give you that you do not already have? But you call us, Lord, in your grace to worship you, to give of ourselves as a living sacrifice. Laying down ourselves, maybe even our own lives for the sake of your gospel, and for the sake of Christ. We need help to do this, Lord. We need help by your Spirit. We need help to discern your will. We are bombarded with choices and decisions day after day. What should I do? How should I live? There's much wisdom and grace that is needed. But when we come to your word, we are not found without answers. 
As we come to your law, we are shown the path of life that shows us how we are to live according to your will. That we can have confidence that if we are doing these things in faith and for the glory of God, they are pleasing to you. A sweet smelling aroma that is accepted in heaven. Help us, Lord, to live for you as we go this week. Give us strength by your grace and help us to walk in all your ways. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.